Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's preacher is Donald Gray Barnhouse. He studied doctrine with Reuben Archer Torrey, and he did personal work with Thomas Corwin Horton. His sermons have grown no less important to those who hear or read them today. Dr. Barnhouse presents a study on Luke chapters 11 and 12. was praying in a certain place. And when he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Now, someone will say, oh, the King James, the Revised Standard Version left out who art in heaven. Well, in the Greek, in Matthew, it says, who art in heaven. But in the Greek, in Luke, it does not say so. And Luke put it down as the Holy Spirit had him remember it. And in Matthew, it's in the longer form, which we usually recite. But do you want a translation or an interpretation? And since in the Greek, it is not there, well, leave it out here. Now, furthermore, we might as well make the comment that in verse 4, when we come to the end, but deliver us from evil, he stopped there, while in Matthew it goes on to say, but thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Now, this is two forms of the prayer. And in under inspiration, this does not mean that Jesus prayed it in two different ways. He prayed it in one way. And the Holy Spirit had Matthew write it down in a longer form and Luke write it down in a shorter form. Because if they had all written every word that Jesus said, there would have been thousands of volumes written, and many, many times the Lord repeated himself. We know this is true from close study of different passages in the Scripture. There is really no difficulty here if we understand this principle. Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. There's a beautiful story involved here if you see the relationship of the friends. This is a story of somebody who has just gone to bed. It's 11.30 at night and all of a sudden the front doorbell rings and a carload of people whom you know very well said, we tried to get here a couple of hours ago, but the traffic was so heavy and you don't mind if we stop in. You told us to drop in any time. And you remembered, of course, that you had just finished everything in the refrigerator. There wasn't even enough to make it look more if you put a piece of lettuce under it. And so very definitely, you had to go next door. Now, you don't like to do this, but you call them up in the middle of the night. And you say, friend, horizontally, a friend in the other direction has come. And I'm the man in the middle. And the source of supply you're related to by friendship and the appetite you are also related to by friendship. 
Now God Almighty says, you are like that. Around you are people with spiritual needs and you're related to the world by friendship. Oh, says somebody, no, no, no. I don't want to be a friend of this world. The Bible says in 1 John, the friendship of the world is enmity against God. That is, if you take the world's friendship on their terms. But this does not mean that you're not to be friends with unsaved people. If you don't know enough unsaved people to have them invite you to dinner, there's something wrong with your Christian life. If you've pulled in and said, oh no, I would not for a moment be friends with such people. They, they smoke, they drink. Well, how do you think you're going to get acquainted with them to give them Christ? You see, you're to be strong enough in Christ so that you can reach and touch them so that they'll know that you're not a prissy person who uh, excludes them, but that you are a person of strong principles and can sit with anybody, anytime, place, and can be with them on their ground. I truly would not care if somebody saw me some night sitting in some den down at uh, the, near the end of the bridge. I don't know the streets anymore, but if somebody said, I saw Dr. Barnhouse in that place, I hope that enough people would say, well, there must be some soul he was there trying to get out. And that's the way you should live, so that people would understand that if you're seen on the street with somebody of a disreputable reputation, you're there for the purpose of helping them. And that it's not a compromise for a Christian to be any place. It was not a compromise for Jesus to be found with publicans, harlots, and drinking people so that his enemies called him a glutton and a wine-bibber. They will answer for that at the judgment seat of Christ. But notice that we're the man in the middle. And when somebody comes to us, we have to go to the Lord and say, friend, and by the way, are you a close enough friend to him that you can get an extra loaf of bread anytime you need it? I'm not talking merely about bread made out of wheat. I'm talking about the answer to a problem. If somebody comes to you and says, I have a big problem, what should I do? My son has done this, my daughter has done this, what should I do? I hope that you don't have to say, well, let's go ask Dr. Barnhouse. We have a good many thousands of letters like that in connection with our radio, and I often sigh over the fact that the people that write them don't have enough friendship with God to get the answer direct. You should be able to get your answer from him by the Holy Spirit and give it. Friend, a friend has come, and I have nothing. Now there's the secret. You're often not willing to ask God because you want to make the friend think that you have something, but you don't. I have nothing to set before him, and, and the friend will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed, I cannot uh, get up and give you anything. Is this Jesus describing God the Father? Yes, it is. Well, why does he do it in these terms? It's not that God is in bed asleep, but that he is wanting to teach you the doctrine of importunity, that you lay hold upon God and say, I will not let thee go till thou hast blessed me. Because if you go to God and say, God, I'm, I would like something, will you give it to me? Well, he didn't, so I'm sorry. You didn't wait long enough. He wants to know if you mean business. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. 
And I tell you, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Now he's talking to believers here, of course, those in the covenant. He's not talking to unsaved people. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him it knocks, it will be opened. Now this is not true for unbelievers. They must come first to Christ. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now this was said before Pentecost. God has given the Holy Spirit to every one of us now. And if you're going to apply this verse to us today, then you'll have to speak of it as that he will give the fullness of the Holy Spirit to them who ask him. Verse 14, now he was casting out a demon that was dumb. When the demon had gone out, the dumb man spoke and the people marveled, but some of them said, Jesus casts out demons by Baal-zebul, the prince of demons, Baal, while others to test him sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And in Matthew, this is further set forth, the wonderful truth that the devil's kingdom is divided against itself. You see, the devil does not have a unanimous set of demons that are all working for him. The devil's angel in charge of Moscow is at war with the devil's angel in charge of Hungary and the devil's angel in charge of Poland. And there's quite a lot of difficulty with him and the devil's angel in charge of Washington, D.C. Oh, you say there's no devil's angel in charge of Washington, D.C. From the devil's point of view, there is. Now, God may have his forces arrayed, and we're here, and for the sake of those who are believers, God may fend off the power of Satan. But in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, it says that the devil is in charge of the governments of this world. That we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heaven, the rulers of this world's City Hall, Harrisburg, Washington, and way stations. The devil is the prince of this world and the god of this age. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and house falls upon, upon house. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? And it will not stand because it is divided. For you say that I cast out demons by Baal-zebul, and if I cast out demons by Baal-zebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when one stronger than he assails him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted his A-bombs in which he trusted, his jet planes in which he trusted, his guided missiles in which he trusted, and divides his spoil. Oh, God, help us that our trust be never in anything but in him. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. 
Now this is a picture of a man who is reformed without being born again. This is somebody who makes a quote decision, unquote, but never bows before Christ. And a man who makes a religious decision and says, well, I'll see what it's all about. I'll go and join a church. But who is not born again, he makes it possible in a little while for the devil to come back and his later condition is far worse than his earlier condition. Then the demon goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than himself and they enter and dwell there and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. And as he said this, a woman in the crowd raised her voice. Now let's see what it is that he has just been talking about. He's just been talking about the uselessness of self-reformation. And he speaks of a demon being cast out of a man and the demon going out into the wilderness and finding seven other demons and coming back into the clean man and making him dirtier than he was before because you're not saved by reformation. You have to be born again. And all of a sudden, and I think you've got to realize that the woman that said this was a pious ignoramus. You see, this woman raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bare you and the breasts that you sucked. But Jesus said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now this is Christ saying that a common, ordinary anybody who believes is just as great as the Virgin Mary. He's saying here, don't come around to me with any prayers to the Virgin Mary or any blessings upon the Virgin Mary. Of course, the Virgin Mary is dead, her body's in the grave, her soul and spirit are in heaven because she trusted in Christ and she's saved like any other sinner. As she said in the Magnificat, my spirit hath rejoiced in God, my Savior. And the Virgin Mary has never heard a prayer that has been offered to her. And the Lord says, more blessed than the Virgin Mary, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Verse 29, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign shall be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the men of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will arise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now this is a point where I believe that the Revised Standard Version is distinctly inferior to the King James Version. Now there's no doubt of the fact that as far as the Greek is concerned, a scholar can translate it one way or the other. But the Lord wasn't saying something greater than Solomon is here. As the interpreter's Bible puts it, the kingdom of God. He was saying someone greater than Solomon is here. But don't reject the translation because of this, because we go on some pages and we'll find a higher title given to Christ than any to be found in the whole of the King James Scripture. A re-strengthening of a certain translation. But here it's weak. 
verse 32. The men of Nineveh will arise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a bushel, but on a stand, that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is sound, your whole body is full of light. But when your eye is not sound, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. While he was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat at table. Now, of course, there are people that would have immediately excommunicated him right away and said, why, Billy Graham, you do not have a right to have a union meeting with a Pharisee on the platform. You see the silly idea? The Lord Jesus went right in and sat down with the Pharisee. And in Corinthians, the Bible says, if an unbeliever invites you to dinner and if you want to go, go. You know, it's really terrible, a fundamentalism that becomes so separatist that it doesn't know any bad people. If you don't have any real sinners as friends, there's something wrong with your Christianity. If you say, well, no sinners want to be my friend, well, there's something wrong with you. The Lord Jesus had an awful lot of friends who were the low-down riffraff, and he got along well with them. The great tragedy with a lot of Christians is that when they get saved, they want to crawl in a hole and pull the hole in after them and say, brother, I am separate, separate and separate. Separatism cannot be found in the Bible. There is no line in the Bible that justifies separatism. Separatism from sin, yes. Separatism from, if you wish, the things that you do yourself, you are separate. Come out from among the devil's temples and be ye separate. But you'll never find even one verse in the Bible that tells you to separate from another Christian on the matter of doctrine. It isn't there. There isn't one verse in the Bible that tells a Christian to be separate from another Christian because that Christian doesn't hold a complete high view of inspiration, for example. It's not there. You separate from a Christian if he's a liar, if he has gone through bankruptcy court and is not trying to pay off his creditors, well, then you separate and don't sit in with him at communion and just don't have anything to do with him. If a man is dishonest, a liar, and a cheat, if a man is immoral, then you separate from him. But not on these other grounds. This is very, very important. So verse 37, the Pharisee asked Jesus to dine with him and he went in and sat at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Now, this doesn't mean wash to get the dirt off. This means a ceremonial washing. It wasn't that Jesus Christ was unkempt and ill-mannered, as the atheists have said in a tract. For the Atheists Association in New York have printed a tract on this verse and said the great unwashed Jesus, the filthy, dirty Jesus. What he, they're talking about here is ceremonial washing because the Pharisees even went so far 
as to have an empty bowl brought in without any water in it, and they would roll their sleeves up and go through the motions of washing without any water there. It wasn't a question of dirt. It was a question of religiosity. And this is the thing that Jesus would not do. And the Lord said to them, Now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of extortion and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give for alms those things which are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. That is, give out of your heart and not gestures. But woe unto you, Pharisees, you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. That's like saying, oh, you are meticulous. You'll even separate a church as to whether or not the communion bread should be leavened bread or unleavened bread. And you lie and cheat and steal. Oh, you Pharisees, you argue with the man whether baptism should be immersion, sprinkling, or pouring but you can't trust you in a deal because you're a liar. That's exactly what it's talking about. You go through form and ceremony and not the reality. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and salutations in the marketplaces. Woe to you, you're like graves which are not seen and men walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers said to him, Teacher, in saying this, you reproach us also. Jesus said, If the shoe fits, put it on. Woe to you lawyers also, for you load men. And lawyer doesn't mean a member of the bar. A lawyer means a legalist in religion. A type of person that says, well, now we're going to have a church and everybody that joins has to sign that they will not dance, play cards, go to the movies, drink, smoke, use cosmetics, etc., etc. That's the lawyer in the Bible, the legalist, the person that wants to make religion. I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't do this. About 15 or 20 years ago, a church with several thousand members asked me to come and be their pastor and they had a printed constitution. Nobody joins this church unless they sign that they won't do this, 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 and this. I say, I'm sorry, I won't accept your church. Why not? They, I said, this constitution, but you don't do these things. I said, but I expect to get a lot of people saved who will do them, right? And keep on doing them and that they'll fall off later. After all, are all the deacons here when you were 17 and 18? Where did you do all the things you do now? Is there anybody here who's 30? that is no farther advanced in the Christian faith than when you were 18? All right, then expect some of the young Christians still to, still to sing, now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary, amen, and they go out and start to hot it up. This goes with youth sometimes, and we've got to expect growth, but here was a group of people Ye legalist, you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So your witnesses and consent to the deeds of your fathers. It's like a Methodist today building a church in memory of John Wesley and denying the doctrine of John Wesley. 
You see, just that type of thing. It's like a Presbyterian saying, oh, we are the descendants of Calvin. Well, do you believe in the sovereignty of God? The inspiration of the scriptures? Well, no, but, well, no, but. So you are witnesses, verse 48, you are witnesses and consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you built their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, this is verse 49, therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it shall be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, you legalists, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. In other words, you did not accept salvation by grace alone, and you try to make other people who are going to grace alone turn back to law. It's the Arminian doctrine. It's the people in Philadelphia who preach that you can be saved and then lose salvation. It's the person who denies the security of the believer that's being talked about here. For if you believe that it's possible to be saved and then lose salvation, if you think it's possible for a Christian to fall away and be lost, you are the scribes and the Pharisees. You are the legalists against whom the Holy Spirit is speaking here. Verse 53. And he went away from there. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak many things, lying in wait for him to catch at something that he might say, that they might accuse him. Dr. Barnhouse's comments on Luke 12, verses 1 through 30, are not available on tape. In these verses, Jesus is teaching his disciples the importance of daily trust in God. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not, and yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothe the grass which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind, for all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. Dr. Barnhouse then resumes his comments on verse 31. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock. Now that's the picture of the church as God meant it to be. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that ye have and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old. A treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The Holy Spirit has to lead each individual as to his relationship to material things. In the epistle to Timothy, God, through Paul, told 
the believers who were rich speak to those who are rich in this world goods that God hath given us richly all things to enjoy, but that they trust not in the uncertain riches. In his, through the Holy Spirit, in the book of the Acts, he pointed out at the time of the incident of Ananias and Sapphira that when Ananias owned the property, it was his to dispose of as he wished. And after he sold it, that the money was his to do with as he pleased. God would have accepted the gift of Ananias and Sapphira and would not have killed them if they had come in and said, here is 50%. But when they came in with 50% and said, this is everything, then they were struck dead. It was the sin of a believer. It's the sin of the man who sings, I surrender all in prayer meeting when he doesn't mean it. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Some people have their heaven in a bank, and other people have their bank in heaven. Let your loins be girded about, and your lights burning, and ye yourselves like unto men that wait for the Lord. When he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say to you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch or in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. And this know that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also. The Lord is using these illustrations to point out the suddenness of the second coming, the unexpectedness of the second coming for those who are not watching, and the imminence of the second coming, that there's nothing to precede it, that it may come at any moment, no matter what time of the day or night, be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when you think not. Then Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us or even to all? And the Lord said, who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing, that is just feeding the other believers. Now that's not merely for ministers with the flock. Oh, that you might understand that you have as great a responsibility before God to speak truth to others as I do to speak it to you. Of a truth, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he hath, the rewards for the one who is occupied with these things. But, and if that servant say in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming and shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens and to eat and drink and be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him. Recently, I was in conversation with Dr. Mackay, the president of Princeton Seminary, and he said, I'm never concerned about a young student that comes to seminary that may be fanatic. He said, we'll be able to guide him in the path of truth. He says, but the thing that frightens me is the student who comes in with a casual idea of becoming a professional clergyman. For it's possible. And that's the servant that says, 
the Lord delays his coming. The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, in an hour when he's not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will, and I stop there still further a moment because I know there at every service here there are 20 or 30 theological students. May I point out to you that the harshest words in the Bible are addressed to priests in the Old Testament and ministers in the New. We do not know how many doctors, lawyers, merchants are going to be in hell, but there are two classes of people of whom the Bible says a great many shall be in hell. Dictators... In Isaiah 14, we're told that the dictators, the Caesars, and the Hitlers of the earth are in hell. And in the New Testament, ministers of the gospel. For they shall say unto me in that day, But Lord, have we not cast out demons in thy name, and in thy name done many mighty works? And he will say unto them, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Religion without faithfulness to the great truths and the methods and ways of God. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. Now that's a statement that a liberal modernistic minister will have a much lower hell than a gangster who did nothing more than rob a bank, shoot three policemen, steal a car, escape from jail, and kill four or five more in the posse. He'll not have nearly as bad a time in hell as a minister or a Sunday school teacher or someone who knew the will of God and did not do it but did according to his own will. For unto whomsoever much is given of him, much shall be required. And to whom men have committed much of him, they will ask the more. I am come to send fire on the earth. And what will I if it be already kindled? But I have an identification with which I must be identified. For the baptism here, you must not think of it in the literal sense. The word baptizo, of course, has this common sense of plunging, immersing, submerging. But oh, how much truth is lost by those who stop there and do not see the tremendous spiritual meaning of the word baptizo before it ever became what it was. Don't forget that in the days of Plato and Aristotle, the word baptize did not mean to immerse so much as it did to identify if you'd been in ancient Athens, you'd have gone down the street and seen a sign, John the Baptist, and you'd have taken your clothes in there to be dyed from one color to another. The dyer, the one who took a cloth of one color and changed its identity in dyeing it. And there's the, the word baffle from which bapto and baptizo ultimately came as words change their meaning. Now, says the Lord, I am to be identified with death. And I have this identification with which I must be identified and how I am straightened till it be accomplished. See him pressing to Calvary. Suppose you that I am come to give peace on earth. I tell you no, but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two and two against three. The father shall be divided against the son and the son against the father. 
Just as I went into the prayer meeting of the elders this morning, there was a special delivery letter on my desk, five or six pages long, a heart-rending letter from a woman who speaks of the battle that's in the household where she is. And she said, God has saved me, she says, but there were times when more for months I would sit and brood and pray before she was saved, oh God, give me the courage to murder so-and-so and then kill myself. Oh, we have no idea what goes on. Maybe some of you do have the idea. But, boy, if, but certainly if you stand for the truth, then the father shall be divided against the son and the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He said also to the people, when you see a cloud rise out of the west, straightway you say, there cometh a shower, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, there'll be heat, and it cometh to pass, you hypocrites. You know the weather reports. You can discern the face of the sky and the earth. But how is it that you do not discern this time? Why can you not see how the earth is going to its great cataclysmic judgment? Yea, and why even of yourselves judge you not what is right? When thou goest with thine adversary to the magistrate as thou art in the way, give diligence that thou mayest be delivered from him lest he haul thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and the officer cast you into prison. Now he says, if you do that, if you try to settle out of court with an earthly adversary, how much more must you settle out of court with the Lord Jesus while it's the day of grace? And he says to the unbeliever, I'm ready to save you and settle out of court and take you into heaven, while to the believer he says, I'm ready to settle out of court and if you will confess your sins to me and come back and be a strong Christian, then I will not judge you and put you into heaven by the skin of your teeth. Because remember this phrase that it says, we who are believers in Christ must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And then Paul says to Christians, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, you know, I think so many Christians think of meeting the Lord as, well, won't that be nice? Let's go on and play whatever we're doing. Knowing the terror of the Lord, because every thought that we have, every word that we've spoken, every act that we've committed, as though there on a tape recorder and a motion picture to confront us so that we will see, unless we have been to the Lord and made it right and had it taken away by the blood of the cross. I tell you that thou shalt not depart thence till thou hast paid the very last might. May God bless to us this reading from his word. You've been listening to Donald Gray Barnhouse. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.